Good morning. Oh, there we go. The scripture this morning will be uh, two passages, one from Galatians and one from Hebrews. If you'd like to turn there with me, the first passage will be in Galatians 5, verses 13 through 16. Galatians 5, verse 13. You, my brothers and sisters, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh. Rather, serve one another humbly in love, for the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. If you bite and devour each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. And the second passage is Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 2. Hebrews 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers and sisters, who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, whom we acknowledge as our apostle and high priest, he is faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. Father, it's always true, it's especially incumbent upon us at this moment that we've come to hear your word, and yet your word is um, mediated through the personality of a really flawed human being, and so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come and be the helper now um, through all the inhibitions that lay in the hearts of listeners from hearing your word, in the heart and mind of the speaker, and we pray that you would allow the truth of the gospel by your pleasure to ring forth for freedom among us. Help us, we, we beg you. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, we've been doing this series, we're in week five, I think it is, and um, called Substance, and the, and the subtext is Becoming Oaks of Righteousness in a World of Vapor, that is that um, there is a condition in modernity, this moment that we live culturally, in which we are feeling off. Um, human beings have all, always experienced worry, but there's something about the worry we're feeling, the anxiety that's weighing. It feels like there's a pressure on us. Um, I, I've had people tell me they just, they feel like their faith is being choked out of them. They, they feel torn personally. They feel resentment towards God. They feel compulsion in their behavior to stuff that they, their stomach wants, but they don't really want. That their attention, the compulsion of their attention, their attention's all over the place. They can't focus on what's really the most important thing in their life. They want to flee to leisure. They just feel all messed up. And sometimes people say, I just feel like Christianity doesn't work. And the amazingly ironic thing about that is, is that if we come to the Bible with any kind of eyes to see it, Jesus actually predicted all this stuff would happen in certain, in a certain set of circumstances 
in many times and in various ways. And one of the most straightforward and obvious places he does it is in Matthew chapter 6, where he says, listen, um, just like your eyes are the lamp of your body, they take in light and allow you to see. If you can see, your whole body's full of light, right? Your whole life benefits from it. But if your eyes are darkened, your whole body's full of that darkness, right? If you can't see, it's your head that hits the thing, right? And your toe that gets stubbed, not your eyes, right? Your whole body is full of darkness. And he said, so, so seeing, spiritually seeing, what we call discernment, telling the difference between truth and false, beautiful, ugly, right, wrong, what's really true according to Jesus, is is the most important functional thing about us. And he, and he tells us the most important discernment that you can possibly have is the discernment in this. Nobody can serve two masters. It's not possible. You can't really love and serve two things. Um, because what happens is you'll love one and hate the other, or you'll be really devoted to one. And if you're really devoted to the one, the other will be like, what about your devotion to me? And you'll resent that one. And he says, if you love both God and mammon, mammon is basically um, creation without the creator, the world swirling on its own, doing its own thing, right? That that is an end in itself and the thing we give our to and put our hopes in. He said, if you love mammon as a God and you try to love Jesus as a God, that can't ever work. And you'll hate God and you'll serve mammon and that's what'll happen. And the reason why that's par- partly impossible is because God is a jealous God. He just doesn't, he doesn't do mistresses, okay? He just, that's not how he rolls. But there's another reason functionally why that doesn't work, and that's because the, what the Bible says is that seeking creation as an end in itself without a consciousness of the creator, loving the world, as, or loving the God mammon, the Bible calls that the way of death, right? It's all the things that are in our life, but it's pursuing them in a way that the Bible says brings death, right? And you can't get life on the way of death. You can't go in the way of death and become like life, right? Whereas, it's interesting, Jesus says, look at all that stuff in your life that you think is your life, and then die to it. Act like it's yours to keep, but it's not an end in itself, right? And if you die to what you think is life, you'll find life. You see, it's the opposite principle of what we do in our idolatry. And he said, he said here's, and because here's the thing, you can't become like the world and Jesus at the same time. And you, we humans, because we're dependent, we're always becoming like what we're imitating. And so to try to become, to get life in the way of death, we have a modern metaphor for that. It's called a zombie. It's like getting some remnant of life in a way life can never be. It's trying to get life in the way of death. What you get is this disgusting thing with flesh falling off of it that, like, eats other people, which is a very good archetypal psychological metaphor for what people are like who are given to the flesh and seek the way of death. You have friends who are zombies. You might be a zombie. You have coworkers that are zombies, morally speaking. And so there's, so what Jesus says is instead of trying to serve both God and mammon, what spiritual sight looks like is seeking God first, namely his kingdom, that is his will, what he's doing, and what he owns, right, in in creation, and his righteousness, the way he does it. What he does and the way he does it. Seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And then he says, if you do that, all these other things will be added to you as well. Your father knows you need them. He cares about your real needs. He wants you to experience real life, but the only way you can do it is if you seek his kingdom and his righteousness first, because the most important thing about you is what you're imitating, because you're going to become like what you imitate. 
That's the most fundamental fact about you and about me. And so only if we imitate and seek to become like and to follow the one who is beautiful, the one whose will is perfect and pleasing, the one whose character is perfectly righteous, can we become true image bearers in the way we were meant to be, right? And that there's, we talk, in, in substance, we talk about like four basic marks of this, four pursuits as we pursue God and his kingdom as righteousness. One is self-sacrificial love, which is we give ourselves to real love. That is the end of everything that we're made for, everything that we do. And what I, I don't, and like you might be a sentimental person and be like, well, I'm loving, but Jesus doesn't mean that you do towards others what makes you feel good and what makes them feel good. He means that you do towards other people what is for their true good. Doing what makes you feel good and doing what's for their true good are two often totally different things. And self-sacrificial love, real love, is only what is for their true good. Now the question then becomes, all of a sudden, love becomes a much more complicated thing. So how do you love? And the answer to that is, is that you take the, on the mind of Christ. That if you know what Christ knows about his will and his righteousness, you can approximate much better what love really looks like. And I said, it's kind of like archery. Archery is an imperfect sport. I could shoot from here to there to archery target, and I'm, I'm not going to hit the bullseye most of the time with a conventional bow, right? But if I'm aiming at the bullseye, I know what the mind of Christ is. I know what he says the will and purposes of God are. I know what he says love is, and I aim for the middle of the bullseye. It's very likely that my arrows are going to hit around it pretty close. And what we're hoping for from God when we finally see him face to face is not, you are perfect like Jesus was perfect. That's not going to happen, Okay. What we're hoping for, God tells us in Matthew, is we're hoping for something that sounds like this. Good job. You are a good and faithful servant. You were not perfect. But you were shooting at the target, and the arrows were hitting around the bullseye. You were getting closer, and because you were doing it in faith towards what you knew the will of God was as best you could for the true good of another, that's all I could ask for you in the state that you were in. And I'm pleased with it. Because God, if you're shooting at the target— your arrows aren't going to hit the bullseye, and God can be totally pleased. Right? And so, but here's the problem. You can know that you want to engage in self-sacrificial love, that that's the right thing, and you can have a certain idea of what the mind of Christ is, what Jesus, his will and his character is like, his kingdom and his righteousness, and you can just be too weak to do it. Because what we do comes partly out of who we are and, and the strength that's being formed in us, our character— and the problem is, is that the culture in which we live, it's so worldly that it creates vaporous, brittle, inflexible, weak humans. Because in order for people to be predictable consumers, they have to be really weak. They have to just go after their compulsions. Why do you think they make commercials with, like, sex in it? Like, women and women's legs, and they put up, like, they sell alcohol with, like, drawn—why? Because they, because they expect us to be that visceral. Women's legs, I want that rum. Like— that's so idiotic to a substantive human, but like, that's, that's the state of predictable consumers. Hey, if you buy this green thing, you're a good person, even though it's of inferior quality. Like every, you, do you know, like every couple, like after sex, the next thing that is like the big advertisement is like, we're really good for the environment. Like I was looking at this coat, right, last night on the internet, and it's a coat with uh, like heaters in it. Right? And it's, it was, the, the manufacturers were ch too cheap to put down in it. So it has some like polyester fill in it. And so it said, cruelty free filling. <laughs> As like a bonus. Yeah. So the jacket can weigh two more pounds. Right? So like it's that kind of thing. It's like, oh, you'll be a good person if you buy this coat. Right? 
You see, in a world where consumption is everything, or where, where some big government moralism tells you you're a good person or not, um, visceral people are all that's required, because all you have to do is get angry on the political side, and all you have to do is buy, take, eat, smell, sniff, jump in bed with on the, on the compulsion side. And that's, that's what makes you happy. That's all you are, right? And, and what it makes is extraordinarily weak creatures who can't love. You're just too weak to love. You're too weak to choose life through the way of feeling like you're dying. You're just not strong enough. And Jesus, one of the reasons Jesus died was to make you strong like him, right? And so virtuous freedom is about both what we're liberated from, what's our true emancipation, and what we're saved for. That Christ is seeking through freedom to maximize or really rehabilitate and build the true good in what you were created to be. So you can ask it this way. What are we saved from, and what are we saved for? And you see a lot of Christians, especially at churches like this, that really believe in personal salvation, that you need to believe in Jesus and receive forgiveness and salvation from him. Oftentimes, people at churches like this only think about the first question. And if I say, what are you saved from? You'll be like, oh, I know I'm saved from. We're saved from our sins through Christ, through justification. Like, boom, you got it. And then I say, okay, what are we saved for? And it's like a cow looking at a closed gate. It's like total befuddlement. Like, what are you even talking about? Like, I have no idea what that question even means. You must be talking about works righteousness or some, something like that. When in, in fact, you are saved for something. Think about this. In churches like ours, oftentimes we think of the word saved, which is a biblical word, right? It's not the word that's used the most, but it's a real biblical word. And we think, what, what, are you, what does salvation mean? And we think it's a legal word. Because in Romans, which talks about justification being a legal transaction of our guilt being taken away and Christ's righteousness being put on us so that we're forgiven and made right with God, we think that's the main focus of the concept of saved. It means justified or freed legally, right? Let off. Exonerated. But think about it. What is the first major biblical picture of salvation in the Bible? Okay? If you, don't, if you haven't read the Bible, just hold on a second and listen for the answer, Okay? What is it? And it, shout it out. What's the, the first really big picture of salvation that the Bible goes back to again and again? The Exodus. Right. Which is what? It's not a legal transaction. It's a bunch of people who were given a promise, who through some strange providences and sufferings fell into slavery, became enslaved, were losing who they were, were losing their cultural identity, were being the recipients of genocide. Right? And when all they had left was they just cried out to God to be delivered, God raised up a person out of nowhere. He drew him out of the water. That's what the name Moses means, to be drawn out, just plucked out of death, created out of nothing in the desert, brought to salvation. He opens wide the Red Sea. The people pass through from their slavery into freedom. All their enemies are drowned behind them. And then what happens? They promptly forget about what they're saved for, and they all die in the desert, right? God judges them for their hatred of him and their hatred of salvation and their unwillingness to receive what they're saved for. So the whole generation has to die in the desert. He has to raise up a whole new generation who has an appetite for what they're saved for. And then he brings them into a promised land, and he leads them into a very difficult future, but a very great one. And that's the picture of salvation that's used all through the Bible. The word saved is primarily an emancipation to a useful freedom idea. You're saved from slavery for life. The question is, 
you know, what? So to review briefly last week, last week we talked about the fact that freedom, the right definition of freedom, is the ability to do the good. And therefore, in order for us to have the ability to do the good, we need to have no external tyrannies that keep us from doing the good. That's called liberty. And we have to have the internal capacity to overcome whatever would hold us back, whatever internal wickedness or weakness that would hold us back from the good, so that we have the internal strength to do the good, right? That's called virtue. And nobody can be free without liberty and virtue. Now, most people think that the normal way human beings fail to do the good is that they lack liberty. Now, that's partly true because for most of the history of humanity, people have lived under tyranny. However, most tyrannies are parasitic on the good. So most of the people who've lived under tyranny, the tyranny didn't really keep them from doing most goods. They let them marry and have children and work and produce things, and then the tyranny would just steal some of that stability and production and wealth. So most tyrannies don't actually keep individual people from doing the basic goods of normal human life. The actual thing that is more common is a lack of virtue in the tyrants and in the people. And because of that, that's part of that. You can't have a truly functional human or human society without it. America was partly built on that idea. And it's partly confused now because we don't know anything about our history other than the history of slavery in America. And that's very impoverishing. Now, the American seal actually has this as the main idea of it. And we don't know this now because we're too ignorant. So there's this eagle, which is in this very strange and apparently painful cheerleader split. (laughs) Right? And in one talon, it's holding an olive branch. Now, I don't know if you know this. Olive trees do not grow in America. And they do not grow in any of the northern European countries that most of the early American settlers came from. They grow in the southern Mediterranean and in Israel and in hot places like that. Because the olive branch is not a European metaphor and it's not an American metaphor. It was one of the earliest American forms of cultural appropriation. Okay? It was appropriated from the Bible. Because in the Bible, it did not mean the shallow idea of peace, that there's no war on your soil. It meant shalom. Peace in the presence of justice, free of tyranny. That's what it meant. It meant all of that. It was a holistic idea of peace. Peace in the presence of justice and the absence of tyranny. And the reason why that was so important was because most of the Europeans that came here saw themselves as escaping slavery. And we don't understand that anymore because we know that when they got here, the companies that sent them used their money to also create a transatlantic slave trade and to begin to enslave people here. And so we forget that most of the Europeans that came here came to escape what they saw as slavery. Because they saw the class system of Europe as a form of slavery. You were born into a—still—this is still true in some parts of Europe today. You're born in a class. You really can't rise out of it. You're in this class or that. You're either a lady or a gentleman or you're not. And you're either—and so people who were not considered of the gentry, who were never going to be allowed into the gentry, said, forget this. I'm going to America, and I might die of cholera— but I want a chance to make my own way, right? And those people came oftentimes under a legalized seven-year slavery called indentured servitude just to pay their way over here, to work seven years just to be free, just to try to make a life for themselves, okay? And most of those people hated slavery. 
because it cheapened the work of their labor, right? And then the other one is a group of arrows. Now, when that was made, there were already guns. So why isn't, why isn't the bird awkwardly holding a rifle? Right? It's because the arrows stand for strength, but there's a reason why there's a number of them. Because the clutching of the arrows doesn't just stand for bravery. We say bravery. What people used to say was fortitude. And fortitude is the king of the virtues of strength. And there are a number of them, like a group of arrows. And they're all required for real strength. And so the Americans saw themselves as people of fortitude. They were carving out a frontier. They were building cities out of nothing. They were dying of cholera. They were, they were, they fought the most advanced military group ever in the history of the world to that point, the British army. And they, they beat them without boots, bleeding in the snow with hunting rifles because screw those British people were not going to submit to their stinking taxes. Right? That's how they saw themselves. And they believed they didn't win because they had bigger cannons or better rifles or better food or anything. The only advantage they had was they could fight when the British drank. That's the only advantage. Right? The first major victory on Christmas Eve was that the, the British believed and the German mercenaries believed that nobody could march through a snowstorm with cannons— Nobody would do it on Christmas Eve, and it's because no European army would. But George Washington's did. And somewhere between 8 and 20 men froze to death on the march. They crossed a river. They surprised the British. They won the first victory when the army was disintegrating. And the next two weeks, something like 15,000 new men freely signed up for the American Revolution. And it changed the world. Because they saw their character as a bundle— of virtues of fortitude. And they believed that shalom and fortitude was the basis of freedom, endurance, and strength. And the problem with America was not that it didn't start out with a good philosophy. It's that we were worse than our philosophy. That's the great horror of the history of America, is that we were worse than our philosophy. Now, what that means is, is that Os Guinness and others who wrote about this, it's ironic that a British guy had to figure this out about America, that there is this fundamental relationship between freedom and liberty and virtue. Virtue must exist to, pr- to keep liberty. If you want to hear more about that, go to last week's sermon. But yet virtue can't create itself. It has to be created by a belief in something fundamentally greater, transcendent than you, that orders you. Um, Benjamin Franklin said it has to at least include belief in a God of judgment and a God of moral commandments. He's like, that. if you believe—I don't care if anybody believes anything more about God than that, but for us to have a life together, people have to believe in at least those two to create—believe in that in faith for it to produce virtue, which can sustain freedom. Does that make sense? Now, what we believe as Christians is that there's a reason why—now, this is not why the emblem is like that, but it is apropos that the eagle is flying in midair. <laughs> because that all has to be rooted in something, and in, in a place of religious freedom— you can't demand everybody root it in the gospel, but what most people then knew, and what we should know, is, is that that kind of virtue really is meant to be rooted in Christ himself. Right? And so, one of the things we need to see about liberty and virtue and how they function together to free us is we need to understand deeply what our great emancipation is. What are we freed from? And the Bible's super clear about this. We're saved from our slavery to our depravity, to our flesh, to what one biblical author calls our, our own stomach. In Second Peter, 
right before this verse in 2.12, he says, he says, um, the people that are trying to deceive you, they're so, they're so addicted to their own passions that they're like mindless animals, born to be like used to plow fields and then they're cut up for meat and they will be destroyed similarly. And the assumption here basically is, is that without the awakening of what we're meant to be as human beings in the nature of true and free virtue towards love with the mind of Christ, we descend into this cycle of compulsion in the flesh that turns us into these grunting animals living in the compulsion of our stomach. And in, in so doing, we're so degraded by it that we become vaporous and brittle and easily controlled and easily deceived. And it says in Ephesians that um, not only were we following the flesh, but we were believing in and following its desires and its thoughts. That is, we didn't just do what our flesh wanted, what our sinful nature or depravity wanted. We bought into its argument for why it was okay to do it. So we confounded and degraded our own thinking, our hearts. We sinned against our conscience. And then it says this. It says, but God made you alive with Christ. So that what happens is that in Christ's death and resurrection, God puts forward to you the opportunity for faith. And in faith, he makes you alive through his own supernatural power. And because he does that, it means that you've been saved by it. And the word we use is grace. That is sheer generosity. That has nothing to do with your merit. It's the most fundamental idea in Christianity besides that there's a God. That God acts on the basis of grace to save us. Now, that's a really interesting idea because if you go a little later in the book of Ephesians, it says this. It says, you were taught with regard to your former— meaning when you became a Christian, and you were taught what that means. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. So he's saying, you know, while we were going along with the flesh before we were saved, right, the flesh has its own thoughts and desires. And it says not only were we believing those, but they were corrupting us progressively. We were becoming more and more corrupted by those deceitful desires. But it says this, which is being corrupted by your— So you put off the old self, which is being corrupted, and to be made new in the attitude of your minds. Now that is a very, very interesting phrase. To be made new. Because it is a passive imperative. Okay, now just think about that for a second. It is a passive imperative. Right? So he's saying, (coughs) you make this thing done to you. Right? It's like talking to a car and say, get newer. You know? It's, it's not saying, you go do this. It's saying, you have this happen to you. Right? Now, to the cynical and simple-minded, that just sounds like a contradiction. How can you actively do what has to be done to you? But it gets at the fund- fundamental mystery of faith, that you have to do something actively There is a condition of salvation that you have to meet. You have to believe. You have to trust God. You have to seek first his kingdom. You have to, you have to get in there, tiger. You know, you you gotta, you gotta believe, right? You gotta seek his kingdom and his righteousness. You gotta go after Jesus. You have to, in the words of Hebrews, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who's running out in front of us. We're running up behind him, right? And yet, 
very fundamentally is saying, this has to be done to you. Because you, you actually can't do this thing because it is, it is fundamentally supernatural. You have to like psychologically and emotionally and morally comply and enter into it. But what actually has to happen for your real renewal is that God has to supernaturally act again and again and again and change you. And those two are fused together in a strange and mysterious way. Such that you have to be totally given to it. God does all. You can't brag. And yet he wants to make you into somebody who walks and lives in his true righteousness and holiness, the Bible actually says. Now, if that's true, if that's what we're liberated out of, then what are we actually saved for? So let me tell you a quick story. So this is not a true story. So imagine, like, I was visiting at the jail, and I came to you guys, and I was like, okay, there's this guy I met at the jail. His name's Aaron. And, you know, he's on charges for drug possession, and he, he's been doing some math. He doesn't—he only has three-quarters of his teeth. But I was talking with him, and I found out when I googled his family name that his mom is one of the top piano players in, in the whole eastern United States. And of her three kids, she said, only one of them has any musical aptitude, and she has—and he has more than she's ever seen. Like, this is a once-in-a-lifetime, like, capacity, and it's her son that, like, tried some drug at some party and got hooked on meth, and now he's in jail. And I said, listen, here's what we're gonna do. We are, like, we're gonna get involved in this guy's life. So we're gonna, we're gonna work with the DA. We're gonna make a deal with him. There's this guy who was a piano player, but then he became a pastor, and he's retired, and he lives, like, outside of Helena, Montana. It'll be the perfect place for this guy. And if he agrees, so, we, so he agrees to it. We send him out for like, five, for, like, four years, and he's, like, living with this pastor, learning to play the piano again. We're flying out a teacher from, you know, the East Coast. And he's like getting mentored. He's getting free of his addiction. And he's growing in faith and virtue, right? And five years later, he's traveling with this guy. He's finally playing. And he's—and we, we all buy tickets and we go to the concert. And it is just so heartbreakingly beautiful, the music that this man creates. It's like nothing we, we've ever heard. And you're like— that's what he was for. Right? So, he had to get out of jail. He had to get free of his addiction. He had to get free of his tyrannies. Right? He needed to be justified legally. He needed to be brought out of the pit he was in. So that he could fulfill his purpose. His gift, he could, he could live in his gift, right? Now, some of you are thinking, yeah, Nick, that's a, that's a neat story, whatever, but like, you used an example in the story of like a once in a, like a five billion people, a super special person, to like make that all make sense. Okay, maybe, but what's more special? An artist of a human generation or an everlasting being created in the image of God? It's the latter. It's the everlasting being created in the image of God, and you are that being. You are that being. What you are and what you are created for is the purpose of God in your salvation. Yes, he wanted to save you. Yes, he wanted to forgive and justify you. Yes, he wanted to bring you back to himself. Yes, he wanted a relationship with you. He wants all that, but he also, want, he also wants— to give you the gift he gave you when he created you. 
that we've been running from and losing and destroying and twisting our whole lives and that the flesh has torn, almost torn out of our very selves and that was being corrupted as we were living for the flesh and buying into the lies of the flesh. And the purpose of Christ's death and resurrection is to free you from all of that and to let you see again that you are this being made in God's image for his purposes. That is amazing. That is of more consequence than you have ever imagined. And you are saved for that. Don't have a hard and unbelieving heart like the first children of Israel that came through the Red Sea and thought that they were just going to be saved for whatever they felt like filling their stomachs with. Because remember what their complaint was? Man, we had like cucumbers and stuff to eat back in, in Egypt. And you're like, what a bunch of stupid idiots. But like, if you got sent to the mission field and couldn't get Chipotle, what would you whine about? Sorry if that was a cool tone. So now, the, the, the not so exciting thing about this is, is that the way the Bible says this is it says we're freed from the law. Our ultimate freedom is that we're freed from the law, which does not sound that sexy, okay? And it's also a little bit confusing because what the Bible actually says in Romans 7, okay, we took that one out. In Romans 7, I'll get to this one in just a second, is that he says the, the law is perfect, but because it was weakened by the flesh, that is, we weren't like good people. The law is good, but we're not good people. So it's like the law could never get us to live up to it because of the humans, right? And so he's like, you know, so, so you would think, okay, wait a second. If the purpose then of Christ is to liberate us from the weakness of the flesh, to like reorder us in the power of the Spirit, then like it sounds like Jesus is quitting on the law right when we could actually do it. Right? I mean, like, it seems like he would keep the law. He'd be like, all right, now I've made you able to live up the law. Now do it. And right at that moment where it seems like we could finally live up the law, he's like, okay, we're getting rid of the law. And isn't that great? And you're like, I don't know. This is the way Paul says it in Galatians. He says, it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Now that sounds like a tautology, and it is. But it's also incredible, which is this. The freedom that Christ died to give us is an end in itself. He died to make you free so that you could be free. He says, therefore, Stand firm then and do not let yourself be burdened again by the yoke of slavery. And now he says a couple things that make us think like he's really serious because he says, mark my words, I, Paul, tell you. Right? Now that's not very common. I don't even ever say that to my kids. Hey, listen, mark my words, I, your father, Nicola Gibson, am telling you. Like this, he's, he's trying, he's very, very serious. Whatever he says next is the most important thing in Galatians. It's the, it's the biggest focus he has. If people don't get this, they're not going to have anything left of the gospel. He says, I, listen to this, do not become slaves again. Mark my words, I, Paul, tell you, if anyone Let's yourself be circumcised. Christ will be of no value to you at all. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole lot. Now, you did not think it was just going to turn to circumcision, did you? That's even less sexy. In kind of a literal way. Now, why, why is it talk about circumcision? Right? And it's because the biggest controversy among the early Christians was, if I, be, if I come to follow Jesus, does that mean I become a Jew? And the mark of, the, of Jews was, is that men were circumcised, and that meant they were people of the law. 
And so there was this question, after I've come to Jesus, if I'm this, like, Greek Christian, right, do I get circumcised because in Christ I'm also a person of the law, and then I try to live up the law? And Paul's like, no! No, 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 no! You don't go under it right when they just got free of it. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. And here's his reasoning. He says, listen, there's two reasons. He says, you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. But by faith we eagerly await through the Spirit the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So there's two reasons, right? And in Christian faith we refer to these as justification and sanctification. Justification is, it is not by obeying the law that you get made right with anyone, okay? So justification is mainly about us being made right with God, but the word justification means, like, you have an excuse for your existence. It means that Whatever somebody said, accuses you of, you can justify yourself, right? Kind of like when you argue with somebody. You're like, I'm just fine. You can't judge me, right? What this says is that Jesus is the, the true justification for the problem of your existence. First before God, but then in every other way too. Like all the accusations you have of yourself that are perfectly well grounded in your own stupidity. You're like, I'm a terrible person. You are, but the justification for your existence is that Jesus died for you. You are immensely valuable. You're made in his image. He's redeeming you in the person for whom God says that person is good enough in Christ. Who can accuse them? Nobody is the answer, says Romans 8. Right? So it's Christ that justifies you to you. It's Christ that justifies you to God. It's Christ that justifies you to you. It's Christ that justifies you to everybody else. And it's Christ that justifies what it means that you live in creation. And what it means is, is that you don't have to, like, jockey for anything anymore. You don't have to have this kind of hypocrisy of, like, well, maybe I'm good enough, but then I'm going to—and you don't have—and there's no boasting, right? And a number of places the Bible says, because we're saved this way, you can't brag, which is really important. And the second is sanctification, which is this. By freeing you from the law, Jesus is unleashing the most possible good in your life. Okay, so let's look at those two quickly. It says—oh, that's not what I want. Okay. So, what justification's effect is, is if you're saved totally by grace, not because you're a good person, because God is completely generous to you, He made you alive in Christ, then what that means is, is that two things can enter your heart as the fundamental motivations of your soul. Humility, you're not that important. So isn't that—that's interesting. So what God is trying to tell you in the gospel is that you're infinitely important, and you're not that important. You're going to find that Christianity is full of this stuff. You're infinitely important in that Jesus would die to save you. You bear God's image. You could hardly be more important to God just like everybody else. Right? And the purpose of being here is that we're living a life of love according to the mind of Christ, which means what we're here to do is serve, which means (laughs) the problem that we have is not, well, can you be served and I therefore have to serve you? If we're here to serve, the question is, which one of us gets to serve first, and you're just going to have to receive the service? Because that's what we're here for. And see, humility allows you to do that. You just think everybody's better than yourself. Not because they're literally better than you, but because you're here to serve. Everybody's here to serve. If everybody's here to serve, they just naturally take the position of a servant, which means the other person is the person who's getting served. So they just get lifted up a little higher. It's not like they deserve it. They're as important as you, just like everybody else. But if you have in your mind the idea that I'm here to serve— I'm here to be like Jesus, and Jesus put himself at the very, very bottom and served everybody, then humility always puts you lower and pushes everybody up. Right? And then the other is thankfulness. You see, if you're angry 
about what you don't have, you can't love anybody. You can't be happy. Like when you wake up in the morning, if you wake up in the morning and you're happy, why are you happy? Now it might be because you have a particularly exciting day, but that's not most days, right? And if you're young, maybe you're just happy because you're, you know, you're young, you're kind of dumb, you know? (laughs) But the reason why a human being could wake up happy every single morning is if they're thankful they had a day and thankful they get a day to serve and love in as stewards of everything that's under their power. That's it. And if, if you really feel that way, if your heart's full of thankfulness, then you got a day and you get a day. And it's a great day, right? It's the best sinus infection I've ever had. You know, it's a, that kind of attitude. And you see, people who've been justified, and I don't mean just they believe in Jesus, people who know it, who feel their justification. People who have not only say they believe in Jesus, they've so interacted with the truths of it that it is reshaping their conscience and their heart and therefore their feelings are progressing towards a heart that is ruled by Christ in humility and thankfulness. And a heart that is ruled by humility and thankfulness is capable of any good. And a heart in which humility and thankfulness are not its main functioning components can never love like Jesus. And you see, sanctification works to make us strong enough so that humility and thankfulness can flow out of us. It makes us people strong enough to be faithful, that is, to be virtuous, right? Now, what that means is, is that if our hearts through justification are full of thankfulness and humility, and we're being made strong in virtue, then the question is, okay, so Nick, so, so what's the scope of this? Can, can I have an application, please? Some of your sermons are kind of academic, and they don't have enough application. Okay, here's the application. What are you free to do in love and service? The answer is everything! Everything! Right? You see, in the flesh, we get bored, okay? Because people full of boring people are bored, right? And the flesh makes us boring people, so we get bored, right? And so we just all like the world isn't good enough because we're not, we're not enraptured by the beauty of everything around us and the opportunity in everything around us. We don't see ourselves as everlasting creatures bumping up against everlasting creatures for eternal goods or evils in a world that is created by God and bathed in his beauty. We don't see any of that. And so we're just bored. We're just angry all the time, right? And so we fill our lives through the flesh with all kinds of drama. Because we want some kind of excitement. So we're like, you know, we just like intentionally create all kinds of problems, like junior high girls, you know? And like, and we're like, at least my life is interesting, you know? It's, like, it's kind of like the people are like, well, if I'm in hell, at least I'll be with interesting people. No! By definition, sin makes you boring and ridiculous, right? And you're so narrowed in what could bring you pleasure, only stupid, idiotic, and sinful things can bring you pleasure. And so you're not getting smarter, you're getting more narrow, right? It's so, but here's the thing. The, the life dominated by the flesh is full of drama. And you're afraid that without drama, there won't be anything interesting. But if, you would al- if we would allow ourselves in some kind of deep fullness to be awakened by the beauty of the glory of the purposes of Christ, you would see that your entire life in Christ is full of an unending romance. Everything in your life is meaningful. Everything matters. Everything has a weight of glory to it. Everything is an opportunity. Everything, there's something to be gained and lost. Every person has a need. Everything, everything is going on all the time at every moment. It's not too little, it's too much. And you fear it because you're so, you're so, we're so weak in our lack of virtue that we're, we're afraid to walk on the grass of heaven because it's so solid it'll go through our feet. We just, we don't, we don't know how we would even live in the weight of that kind of glory, or we're too cynical to believe it can even exist. 
but the life that is freed in justification and sanctification that comes from the beauty of Christ, the heart that is possessed by humility and thankfulness and the character that is strengthened by virtue lives a life of total romance, but that is eerily free of drama. But there's, there's another thing that is even kind of more astounding than that, and that is the other reason why we're freed from the law. It's not just so there wouldn't be boasting, but it's so that we can actually become our maximal selves, because what the Bible teaches is that in Genesis 1, it says we're created in God's image, and we're created to have dominion, and it says that the manner by which we're meant to have that dominion in Ephesians 4 is that we would become a new self in Christ, that is created to be like God. See, it's reckoning back to Genesis 1 that says, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So we're made in God's image to have dominion over what is in our life. That is, we're stewards, right? We own nothing, but we're in charge of everything that's in our life. And we're meant to do it in true righteousness and holiness. And the problem with that is, is you can't do that under the law. Not right. I think I read this to you last year. There's this great story about this history professor from Michigan State, who I heard did us a great service by beating Michigan um, recently. But so this guy, so listen to the story. Christopher Ratt and his seven-year-old son were attending a Detroit Tigers game together, baseball. When Ratt was, went to the concession stand, he grabbed a beer for himself and a Mike's Hard Lemonade for his son, unaware that the drink contained 5% alcohol. When a security guard saw Ratt's son nursing the bottle of the spike beverage, he immediately took it from him and rushed the boy to the, emer- to the stadium's medical clinic. The medical clinic called an ambulance, and the boy was sent to an emergency room. The doctors at the ER found no trace of alcohol in the system and were ready to release the boy to his father, but the police— had other plans because according to procedure, the police were required to turn the child over to the county's child protective services. Many of the officers hated the fact that they had to do this, but the rules were the rules. County officials put the boy into a foster home for three days, even though the case agents didn't feel like it was the right thing to do, but they had to follow procedure. A judge then ruled that the boy could be released from foster care into his mother's custody so long as Rat moved out of the house. Again, the judge was just following the procedures— In his ruling, after two long weeks, the dad and the son were finally reunited. The police, county workers, and even the judge all agreed that this family went through something because of a dad's honest mistake, and it wasn't an execution of justice, but their hands were tied. One of the things that we need to realize about law is that law is designed to prevent evil, but by its very nature, it therefore then prevents good. So, for example, if I want to prevent people on church staff from being lazy on Sunday mornings, I could have them all write a report about exactly what they did so that I can audit those reports and make sure that they're working hard, okay? A lot of businesses do this. It's the bureaucratization of you work in America, right? And, but here's, here's what it also does. They have to spend a bunch of time writing this out, and I have to spend a bunch, bunch of time evaluating it, and while they're writing it out and I'm doing it, none of us are doing our jobs, Right? Say the, the same rule that means, makes it so that if you touch somebody unwantedly, that's battery, right? Which keeps you from, like, getting beaten up in public places. Is the same reason why if somebody heckles your wife, you can't punch them in the face even though they definitely deserve it. Right? There, there's a lot of rules like this that are well-intentioned. It's probably for the best, all things considered. But it limits goods. All rules limit goods. Right? Uh, a great ex- and a great example of the stupidity and absurdity of law, besides that example, is you can give another example that's the opposite, where the law doesn't do anything. So, for example, there was this homeless guy in Florida. He was, like a lot of homeless guys are, he wasn't particularly agile, and he may have been ingesting some kind of substance. But for some reason, he waded out into a pond, 
Okay? And while he was waiting out there, he slipped. And he started, like, going underwater, right? And there were three teenagers that were right there next to the pond, walking by. Well, this guy was clearly starting to drown. And so what they did, like you would expect, is they took out their cell phones, and they videoed the man's death while heckling him. Right? And then they, I think they posted it on Facebook. At which point, the sheriff promptly arrested them, not because he could actually charge them anything, because it wasn't really against the law. He came up with something charged just so he could throw them in prison for the night. Right? Because he knew it was the right thing to do, even though he was probably abusing his power under the law. And then they got released, and that was that. Right? Now, that might deserve the death penalty. It's possible. We could argue about it a little bit. I, it's hard to imagine a more horrific way to behave as a human being than to not only not help someone that you could easily help, but to heckle them while they die. Okay? This is one of the most horrifically terrible things I've ever heard about, just the inhu- fundamental inhumanity of it. And yet, it's perfectly legal. Perfectly legal. And yet, would you want a law that demanded if you passed by somebody who was in some kind of trouble, you legally had to do something? Otherwise, you could be prosecuted relatively severely for it? I mean, most people don't want that law. What they want is to be able to trust people to help other people with some kind of decency. Well, the law can't fix that, turns out. The law isn't that kind of thing. Rules aren't that kind of thing. That's not what reality is like. That's why we cannot fix our society through the government, for example. What the Bible says has to happen is this. You have to trust in Jesus. You have to be made new in Christ so that God, in his work, does his workmanship in you and gives you his Holy Spirit who supernaturally comes in contact with the, with the root of your inner capacity for truth and goodness, which is your conscience. The Holy Spirit comes in and starts rooting out all the junk you believed when you were living according to the flesh, which may be up until this moment, okay? Because you were living according to the flesh and you were believing its thoughts and desires, that was making it into your character. And the Holy Spirit has to come and be like, we're getting rid of all this stuff. He's going to tear out all that wiring, and it's going to hurt, and it's going to be humiliating, and it's going to be—feel unhelpful, and it's going to be your life. It's going to save your life. And then he's going to reorder— under the, the true law of goodness, according to his will and his kingdom. So that who you are is its own law. What the Bible calls the law of the spirit of life, or living by the law of love. Because Jesus says, listen, I'm not giving up on the law. Anybody who truly loves their neighbor for their neighbor's good fulfills the whole law and much more. You see, what Jesus has freed you from is the idea that even if you kept the law, you'd be a good person. Or if you kept the law, you'd have done enough. Those teenagers kept the law. They didn't do enough, and neither do we. The freedom of the law, of of being free of the law, is that we're free to become new in Christ. Governed by a, a new heart, a new conscience, enlivened by the Spirit, received by faith, and lived by faith. A a directing towards true love, a fountainhead of joy, something that fills the heart with thankfulness and humility so that not only will we be—act beautifully, but we'll be happy. 
that it'll change to the kind of things, it'll banish half of our anxieties, kill most of our worries. It'll give us a single heart that isn't being torn apart. It'll push off the world that's choking our faith from the inside out. It'll give us the, the, the strength, the virtue, the, the fortitude to step forward into all the goods that we know we should do without being confused about all the ticky-tacks of little laws about whether or not we're doing quite exactly the right thing. We're just shooting at the target, aiming at the bullseye with the life the Spirit gives us, and we're just going to go uninhibited and yet beautifully directed. That is how image bearers were made to be. It is the glory of the freedom of the children of God. It is for freedom that Christ has set you free. Free of the license of the flesh. Free of the legalism of the law. Free of the lower compulsions or the high-minded hypocrisy. Free to be changed by the Spirit. Free to embody virtuous freedom. Aimed at the mind of Christ living a life of self-sacrificial love, free of the drama of stupidity and full of the romance of a God-bathed world. Take hold of it now. It's received by faith, by belief, by trust. Believe it now. Believe in Jesus for all of it, not some stupid little piece that'll make your life better and maybe save your marriage or something. Believe it for all of it. All of it. The whole thing, all of the freedom, all of the life, a new conscience, a new heart, a new mind, a new everything. Receive it and love it and hope in it and be changed by it and walk in it. Be made new. Because you are saved by grace. There's no step you can take toward God by which his grace is a thousand times your faith. We can't have two masters. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and everything else will be added to you. Let's pray. Father, please help us to believe. Holy Spirit, open up in us the capacity for faith, which leads to hope, which leads to love, to unleash joy. Free us from the choking, smothering resentment that worldliness creates from the ridiculous dramas that we fill our life with and fill us with the new romance of the glory of the freedom of the children of God. As we sing, as we pray right now, as we ask somebody next to us in the pew to pray for us, whatever we do to try to turn what's, what's in our hearts, what you're doing in your spirit, help us to turn into some kind of action right now, some kind of solidifying action. Make it part of us, God. Please help us in Jesus' name.